0: Macmillan Audio presents Permanent Record by Edward Snowden. Narrated for you by Holter Graham. Preface My name is Edward Joseph Snowden. I used to work for the government. But now I work for the public. It took me nearly three decades to recognize that there was a distinction. And when I did, it got me into a bit of trouble at the office. As a result, I now spend my time trying to protect the public from the person I used to be. A spy for the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, and National Security Agency, NSA. Just another young technologist out to build what I was sure would be a better world. My career in the American intelligence community, IC, only lasted a short seven years, which I'm surprised to realize is just one year longer than the time I've spent since in exile in a country that wasn't my choice. During that seven-year stint, however, I participated in the most significant change in the history of American espionage, the change from the targeted surveillance of individuals to the mass surveillance of entire populations. I helped make it technologically feasible for a single government to collect all the world's digital communications, store them for ages, and search through them at will. After 9-11, the IC was racked with guilt for failing to protect America, for letting the most devastating and destructive attack on the country since Pearl Harbor occur on its watch. In response, its leaders sought to build a system that would prevent them from being caught off guard ever again. At its foundation was to be technology, a foreign thing to their army of political science majors and masters of business administration. The doors to the most secretive intelligence agencies were flung wide open to young technologists like myself. And so the geek inherited the earth. If I knew anything back then, I knew computers. So I rose quickly. At 22, I got my first top-secret clearance from the NSA for a position at the very bottom of the org chart. Less than a year later, I was at the CIA as a systems engineer with sprawling access to some of the most sensitive networks on the planet. The only adult supervision was a guy who spent his shifts reading paperbacks by Robert Ludlum and Tom Clancy. The agencies were breaking all of their own rules in their quest to hire technical talent. They'd normally never hire anybody without a bachelor's degree, or later at least an associate's, neither of which I had. By all rights, I should never have even been let into the building. From 2007 to 2009, I was stationed at the U.S. Embassy in Geneva as one of the rare technologists deployed under diplomatic cover, tasked with bringing the CIA into the future by bringing its European stations online digitizing and automating the network by which the U.S. government spied. My generation did more than re-engineer the work of intelligence. We entirely redefined what intelligence was. For us, it was not about clandestine meetings or dead drops, but about data. By age 26, I was a nominal employee of Dell, but once again working for the NSA. Contracting had become my cover, as it was for nearly all the tech-inclined spies of my cohort. I was sent to Japan, where I helped to design what amounted to the agency's global backup, a massive covert network that ensured that even if the NSA's headquarters was reduced to ash in a nuclear blast, no data would ever be lost. At the time, I didn't realize that engineering a system that would keep a permanent record of everyone's life was a tragic mistake. I came back to the States at age 28 and received a stratospheric promotion to the technical liaison team handling Dell's relationship with the CIA. My job was to sit down with the heads of the technical divisions of the CIA in order to design and sell the solution to any problem that they could imagine. My team helped the agency build a new type of computing architecture, a cloud the first technology that enabled every agent, no matter where they were physically located, to access and search any data they needed, no matter the distance. In sum, a job managing and connecting the flow of intelligence gave way to a job figuring out how to store it forever, which in turn gave way to a job making sure it was universally available and searchable. These projects came into focus for me in Hawaii, where I moved to take a new contract with the NSA at the age of 29. Up until then, I'd been laboring under the doctrine of need to know, unable to understand the cumulative purpose behind my specialized, compartmentalized tasks. It was only in paradise that I was finally in a position to see how all my work fit together, meshing like the gears of a giant machine to form a system of global mass surveillance. Deep in a tunnel under a pineapple field, a subterranean Pearl Harbor-era former airplane factory, I sat at a terminal from which I had practically unlimited access to the communications of nearly every man, woman, and child on Earth who'd ever dialed a phone or touched a computer. Among those people were about 320 million of my fellow American citizens who, in the regular conduct of their everyday lives, were being surveilled in gross contravention of not just the Constitution of the United States, but the basic values of any free society. The reason you're listening to this book is that I did a dangerous thing for a man in my position. I decided to tell the truth. I collected internal IC documents that gave evidence of the U.S. government's lawbreaking and turned them over to journalists who vetted and published them to a scandalized world. This book is about what led up to that decision, the moral and ethical principles that informed it, and how they came to be, which means that it's also about my life. What makes a life? More than what we say, more even than what we do, a life is also what we love and what we believe in. For me, what I love and believe in the most is connection, human connection, and the technologies by which that is achieved. Those technologies include books, of course, but for my generation, connection has largely meant the Internet. Before you recoil, knowing well the toxic madness that infests that hive in our time, understand that for me, when I came to know it, the Internet was a very different thing. It was a friend and a parent. It was a community without border or limit, one voice and millions, a common frontier that had been settled but not exploited by diverse tribes living amicably enough side by side, each member of which was free to choose their own name and history and customs. Everyone wore masks, and yet this culture of anonymity through polyonomy produced more truth than falsehood because it was creative and cooperative rather than commercial and competitive. Certainly, there was conflict, but it was outweighed by goodwill and good feelings, the true pioneering spirit. You will understand, then, when I say that the Internet of today is unrecognizable. It's worth noting that this change has been a conscious choice, the result of a systematic effort on the part of a privileged few. The early rush to turn commerce into e-commerce quickly led to a bubble, and then, just after the turn of the millennium, to a collapse. After that, companies realized that people who went online were far less interested in spending than in sharing, and that the human connection the Internet made possible could be monetized. If most of what people wanted to do online was to be able to tell their family, friends, and strangers what they were up to, and to be told what their family, friends, and strangers were up to in return, then all companies had to do was figure out how to put themselves in the middle of those social exchanges and turn them into profit. This was the beginning of surveillance capitalism, and the end of the Internet as I knew it. Now, it was the creative web that collapsed as countless beautiful, difficult, individualistic websites were shuttered. The promise of convenience led people to exchange their personal sites, which demanded constant and laborious upkeep, for a Facebook page and a Gmail account. The appearance of ownership was easy to mistake for the reality of it. Few of us understood it at the time, but none of the things that we'd go on to share would belong to us anymore. The successors to the e-commerce companies that had failed because they couldn't find anything we were interested in buying now had a new product to sell. That new product was us. Our attention, our activities, our locations, our desires, everything about us that we revealed, knowingly or not, was being surveilled and sold in secret, so as to delay the inevitable feeling of violation that is, for most of us, coming only now. And this surveillance would go on to be actively encouraged and even funded by an army of governments greedy for the vast volume of intelligence they would gain. Aside from logins and financial transactions, hardly any online communications were encrypted in the early 20 aughts, which meant that in many cases, governments didn't even need to bother approaching the companies in order to know what their customers were doing. They could just spy on the world without telling a soul. The American government, in total disregard of its founding charter, fell victim to precisely this temptation. And once it had tasted the fruit of this poisonous tree, it became gripped by an unrelenting fever. In secret, it assumed the power of mass surveillance, an authority that, by definition, afflicts the innocent far more than the guilty. It was only when I came to a fuller understanding of this surveillance and its harms that I became haunted by the awareness that we, the public, the public of not just one country, but of all the world, had never been granted a vote or even a chance to voice our opinion in this process. The system of near-universal surveillance had been set up not just without our consent, but in a way that deliberately hid every aspect of its programs from our knowledge. At every step, The changing procedures and their consequences were kept from everyone, including most lawmakers. To whom could I turn? Who could I talk to? Even to whisper the truth, even to a lawyer or a judge or to Congress, had been made so severe a felony that just a basic outlining of the broadest facts would invite a lifetime sentence in a federal cell. I was lost and fell into a dark mood while I struggled with my conscience. I love my country, and I believe in public service. My whole family, my whole family line for centuries is filled with men and women who have spent their lives serving this country and its citizens. I myself had sworn an oath of service not to an agency, nor even a government, but to the public in support and defense of the Constitution, whose guarantee of civil liberties had been so flagrantly violated. Now, I was more than part of that violation. I was party to it. All of that work, all of those years, who was I working for? How was I to balance my contract of secrecy with the agencies that employed me and the oath I'd sworn to my country's founding principles? To whom or what did I owe the greater allegiance? At what point was I morally obliged to break the law? Reflecting on those principles brought me my answers. I realized that coming forward and disclosing to journalists the extent of my country's abuses wouldn't be advocating for anything radical, like the destruction of the government or even of the IC. It would be a return to the pursuit of the government's and the IC's own stated ideals. The freedom of a country can only be measured by its respect for the rights of its citizens. And it's my conviction that these rights are, in fact, limitations of state power that define exactly where and when a government may not infringe into that domain of personal or individual freedoms that during the American Revolution was called liberty and during the Internet Revolution is called privacy. It's been six years since I came forward because I witnessed a decline in the commitment of so-called advanced governments throughout the world to protecting this privacy which I regard, and the United Nations regards, as a fundamental human right. In the span of those years, however, this decline has only continued as democracies regress into authoritarian populism. Nowhere has this regression been more apparent than in the relationship of governments to the press. The attempts by elected officials to delegitimize journalism have been aided and abetted by a full-on assault on the principle of truth. What is real is being purposefully conflated with what is fake, through technologies that are capable of scaling that conflation into unprecedented global confusion. I know this process intimately enough, because the creation of irreality has always been the intelligence community's darkest art. The same agencies that, over the span of my career alone, had manipulated intelligence to create a pretext for war, and used illegal policies and a shadow judiciary to permit kidnapping as extraordinary rendition, torture as enhanced interrogation, and mass surveillance as bulk collection, didn't hesitate for a moment to call me a Chinese double agent, a Russian triple agent, and worse, a millennial. They were able to say so much and so freely in large part because I refused to defend myself. From the moment I came forward to the present, I was resolute about never revealing any details of my personal life that might cause further distress to my family and friends, who were already suffering enough from my principles. It was out of concern for increasing that suffering that I hesitated to write this book. Ultimately, the decision to come forward with evidence of government wrongdoing was easier for me to make than the decision here to give an account of my life. The abuses I witnessed demanded action, but no one writes a memoir because they're unable to resist the dictates of their conscience. This is why I have tried to seek the permission of every family member, friend, and colleague who is named or otherwise publicly identifiable in these pages. Just as I refuse to presume to be the sole arbiter of another's privacy, I never thought that I alone should be able to choose which of my country's secrets should be made known to the public and which should not. That is why I disclosed the government's documents only to journalists. In fact, the number of documents that I disclosed directly to the public is zero. I believe, just as those journalists believe, that a government may keep some information concealed. Even the most transparent democracy in the world may be allowed to classify, for example, the identity of its undercover agents and the movements of its troops in the field. This book includes no such secrets. To give an account of my life while protecting the privacy of my loved ones and not exposing legitimate government secrets is no simple task. But it is my task. Between those two responsibilities, that is where to find me. Part One Chapter One Looking Through the Window The first thing I ever hacked was bedtime. It felt unfair being forced by my parents to go to sleep before they went to sleep, before my sister went to sleep, when I wasn't even tired. Life's First Little Injustice Many of the first 2,000 or so nights of my life ended in civil disobedience, crying, begging, bargaining, until, on night 2,193, the night I turned six years old, I discovered direct action. The authorities weren't interested in calls for reform, and I wasn't born yesterday. I had just had one of the best days of my young life, complete with friends, a party, and even gifts. And I wasn't about to let it end just because everyone else had to go home. So I went about covertly resetting all the clocks in the house by several hours. The microwave's clock was easier than the stoves to roll back, if only because it was easier to reach. When the authorities, in their unlimited ignorance, failed to notice, I was mad with power, galloping laps around the living room. I, the master of time, would never again be sent to bed. I was free. And so it was that I fell asleep on the floor, having finally seen the sunset on June 21st, the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. When I awoke, the clocks in the house once again matched my father's watch. If anybody bothered to set a watch today, How would they know what to set it to? If you're like most people these days, you'd set it to the time on your smartphone. But if you look at your phone, and I mean really look at it, burrowing deep through its menus into its settings, you'll eventually see that the phone's time is automatically set. Every so often, your phone quietly, silently, asks your service provider's network, hey, do you have the time? That network, in turn, asks a bigger network which asks an even bigger network, and so on through a great succession of towers and wires until the request reaches one of the true masters of time, a network time server run by or referenced against the atomic clocks kept at places like the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the United States, the Federal Institute of Meteorology and Climatology in Switzerland, and the National Institute of Information and Communications Technology in Japan. That long, invisible journey, accomplished in a fraction of a second, is why you don't see a blinking 12 o'clock on your phone screen every time you power it up again after its battery runs out. I was born in 1983, at the end of the world in which people set the time for themselves. That was the year that the U.S. Department of Defense split its internal system of interconnected computers in half creating one network for the use of the defense establishment, called Milnet, and another network for the public, called the Internet. Before the year was out, new rules defined the boundaries of this virtual space, giving rise to the domain name system that we still use today, the .govs, .mils, .edus, and, of course, .coms, and the country codes assigned to the rest of the world, .uk, .de, .fr, .cn, .ru, and so on. Already, my country, and so I, had an advantage, an edge. And yet, it would be another six years before the World Wide Web was invented, and about nine years before my family got a computer with a modem that could connect to it. Of course, the Internet is not a single entity, although we tend to refer to it as if it were. The technical reality is that there are new networks born every day on the global cluster of interconnected communications networks that you and about 3 billion other people, or roughly 42% of the world's population, use regularly. Still, I'm going to use the term in its broadest sense, to mean the universal network of networks connecting the majority of the world's computers to one another via a set of shared protocols. Some of you may worry that you don't know a protocol from a hole in the wall, but all of us have made use of many. Think of protocols as languages for machines, the common rules they follow to be understood by one another. If you're around my age, you might remember having to type the HTTP at the beginning of a website's address into the address bar of your web browser. This refers to the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, the language you use to access the World Wide Web that massive collection of mostly text-based but also audio and video-capable sites like Google and YouTube and Facebook. Every time you check your email, you use a language like IMAP, Internet Message Access Protocol, SMTP, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, or POP3, Post Office Protocol. File transfers pass through the Internet using FTP, File Transfer Protocol. And as for the time-setting procedure on your phone that I mentioned, those updates get fetched through NTP, Network Time Protocol. All these protocols are known as application protocols and comprise just one family of protocols among the myriad online. For example, in order for the data in any of these application protocols to cross the Internet and be delivered to your desktop or laptop or phone, It first has to be packaged up inside a dedicated transport protocol. Think of how the regular snail mail postal service prefers you to send your letters and parcels in their standard-size envelopes and boxes. TCP, Transmission Control Protocol, is used to route, among other applications, web pages and email. UDP, User Datagram Protocol, is used to route more time-sensitive, real-time applications, such as internet telephony, and live broadcasts. Any recounting of the multilayered workings of what in my childhood was called cyberspace, the net, the infobahn, and the information superhighway is bound to be incomplete. But the takeaway is this. These protocols have given us the means to digitize and put online damn near everything in the world that we don't eat, drink, wear, or dwell in. The Internet has become almost as integral to our lives as the air through which so many of its communications travel. And, as we've all been reminded, every time our social media feeds alert us to a post that tags us in a compromising light, to digitize something is to record it in a format that will last forever. Here's what strikes me when I think back to my childhood, particularly those first nine Internet-less years. I can't account for everything that happened back then because I have only my memory to rely on. The data just doesn't exist. When I was a child, the unforgettable experience was not yet a threateningly literal technological description, but a passionate metaphorical prescription of significance. My first words, my first steps, my first lost tooth, my first time riding a bicycle. My generation was the last in America and perhaps even in world history for which this is true, the last undigitized generation whose childhoods aren't up on the cloud but are mostly trapped in analog formats like handwritten diaries and Polaroids and VHS cassettes, tangible and imperfect artifacts that degrade with age and can be lost irretrievably. My schoolwork was done on paper with pencils and erasers, not on networked tablets that logged my keystrokes. My growth spurts weren't tracked by smart home technologies, but notched with a knife into the wood of the doorframe of the house in which I grew up. We lived in a grand old red brick house on a little patch of lawn shaded by dogwood trees and strewn in summer with white magnolia flowers that served as cover for the plastic army men I used to crawl around with. The house had an atypical layout, Its main entrance was on the second floor, accessed by a massive brick staircase. This floor was the primary living space, with the kitchen, dining room, and bedrooms. Above this main floor was a dusty, cobwebbed, and forbidden attic given over to storage, haunted by what my mother promised me were squirrels, but what my father insisted were vampire werewolves that would devour any child foolish enough to venture up there. Below the main floor was a more or less finished basement, a rarity in North Carolina, especially so close to the coast. Basements tended to flood, and ours certainly was perennially damp, despite the constant workings of the dehumidifier and sump pump. At the time my family moved in, the back of the main floor was extended and divided up into a laundry room, a bathroom, my bedroom, and a den outfitted with a TV and a couch. From my bedroom, I had a view of the den through the window set into what had originally been the exterior wall of the house. This window, which once looked outside, now looked inside. For nearly all the years that my family spent in that house in Elizabeth City, this bedroom was mine, and its window was too. Though the window had a curtain, it didn't provide much, if any, privacy. From as far back as I can remember, my favorite activity was to tug the curtain aside and peek through the window into the den. Which is to say, from as far back as I can remember, my favorite activity was spying. I spied on my older sister, Jessica, who was allowed to stay up later than I was and watch the cartoons that I was still too young for. I spied on my mother, Wendy, who'd sit on the couch to fold the laundry while watching the nightly news. But the person I spied on the most was my father, Lon or, as he was called in the Southern style, Lonnie, who'd commandeer the den in the wee hours. My father was in the Coast Guard, though at the time I didn't have the slightest clue what that meant. I knew that sometimes he wore a uniform and sometimes he didn't. He left home early and came home late, often with new gadgets, a Texas Instruments TI-30 scientific calculator, a Casio stopwatch on a lanyard, a single speaker for a home stereo system. Some of which he'd show me, and some of which he'd hide. You can imagine which I was more interested in. The gadget I was most interested in arrived one night just after bedtime. I was in bed and about to drift off when I heard my father's footsteps coming down the hall. I stood up on my bed, tugged aside the curtain, and watched. He was holding a mysterious box close in size to a shoebox, and he removed from it a beige object that looked like a cinder block, from which long black cables snaked like the tentacles of some deep sea monster out of one of my nightmares. Working slowly and methodically, which was partially his disciplined engineer's way of doing everything, and partially an attempt to stay quiet, my father untangled the cables and stretched one across the shag carpet from the back of the box to the back of the TV, then he plugged the other cable into a wall outlet behind the couch. Suddenly the TV lit up, and with it, my father's face lit up too. Normally he would just spend his evenings sitting on the couch, cracking sun drop sodas and watching the people on TV run around a field. But this was different. It took me only a moment to come to the most amazing realization of my whole entire though admittedly short life. My father was controlling What was happening on TV? I had come face to face with a Commodore 64, one of the first home computer systems on the market. I had no idea what a computer was, of course, let alone whether what my father was doing on it was playing a game or working. Although he was smiling and seemed to be having fun, he was also applying himself to what was happening on screen with the same intensity with which he applied himself to every mechanical task around the house. I knew only one thing. Whatever he was doing, I wanted to do it, too. After that, whenever my father came into the den to break out the beige brick, I'd stand up on my bed, tug away the curtain, and spy on his adventures. One night, the screen showed a falling ball and a bar at the bottom. My father had to move the bar horizontally to hit the ball, bounce it up, and knock down a wall of multicolored bricks. Arkanoid. On another night, he sat before a screen of multicolored bricks in different shapes. They were always falling, and as they fell, he moved and rotated them to assemble them into perfect rows, which immediately vanished. Tetris. I was truly confused, however, about what my father was doing recreation, or part of his job, when I peeked through the window one night and saw him flying. My father, who'd always delighted me by pointing out the real helicopters from the Coast Guard Air Base when they flew by the house, was piloting his own helicopter right here, right in front of me, in our den. He took off from a little base, complete with a tiny waving American flag, into a black night sky full of twinkling stars. And then immediately crashed to the ground. He gave a little cry that masked my own, but just when I thought the fun was over, he was right back at the little base again with the tiny flag, taking off one more time. The game was called Choplifter, and that exclamation point wasn't just part of its name, it was also part of the experience of playing it. Choplifter was thrilling. Again and again, I watched these sorties fly out of our den and over a flat desert moon, shooting at and being shot at by enemy jets and enemy tanks. The helicopter kept landing and lifting off as my father tried to rescue a flashing crowd of people and ferry them to safety. That was my earliest sense of my father. He was a hero. The cheer that came from the couch the first time that the diminutive helicopter touched down intact with a full load of miniature people was just a little too loud. My father's head snapped to the window to check whether he'd disturbed me, and he caught me dead in the eyes. I leaped into bed, pulled up the blanket, and lay perfectly still as my father's heavy steps approached my room. He tapped on the window. It's past your bedtime, buddy. Are you still up? I held my breath. Suddenly, he opened the window, reached into my bedroom, picked me up, blanket and all, and pulled me through into the den. It all happened so quickly, my feet never even touched the carpet. Before I knew it, I was sitting on my father's lap as his co-pilot. I was too young and too excited to realize that the joystick he'd given me wasn't plugged in. All that mattered was that I was flying alongside my father. Chapter 2 The Invisible Wall Elizabeth City is a quaint, mid-sized port town with a relatively intact historic core. Like most other early American settlements, it grew around the water, in this case around the banks of the Pasquotank River, whose name is an English corruption of an Algonquin word meaning where the current forks. The river flows down from Chesapeake Bay, through the swamps of the Virginia-North Carolina border, and empties into Albemarle Sound alongside the Chowan, the Perquimen, and other rivers. Whenever I consider what other directions my life might have taken, I think of that watershed. No matter the particular course the water travels from its source, it still ultimately arrives at the same destination. My family has always been connected to the sea, my mother's side in particular. Her heritage is straight pilgrim. Her first ancestor on these shores was John Alden, the Mayflower's cooper, or barrel maker. He became the husband of a fellow passenger named Priscilla Mullins, who had the dubious distinction of being the only single woman of marriageable age on board, and so the only single woman of marriageable age in the whole first generation of the Plymouth colony. John and Priscilla's Thanksgiving time coupling Almost never happened, however, due to the meddling of the commander of the Plymouth colony, Miles Standish. His love for Priscilla and Priscilla's rejection of him and eventual marriage to John became the basis of a literary work that was referenced throughout my youth, The Courtship of Miles Standish, by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, himself an Alden Mullins descendant. Nothing was heard in the room, but the hurrying pen of the stripling, busily writing epistles important to go by the Mayflower, ready to sail on the morrow or next day at latest, God willing, homeward bound with the tidings of all that terrible winter, letters written by Alden and full of the name of Priscilla, full of the name and the fame of the Puritan maiden, Priscilla. John and Priscilla's daughter, Elizabeth, was the first pilgrim child born in New England. My mother, whose name is also Elizabeth, is her direct descendant. Because the lineage is almost exclusively through the women, though, the surnames changed with nearly every generation, with an Alden marrying a Peabody, marrying a Grinnell, marrying a Stevens, marrying a Jocelyn. These seafaring ancestors of mine sailed down the coast from what's now Massachusetts to Connecticut and New Jersey, plying trade routes and dodging pirates between the colonies and the Caribbean, until, with the Revolutionary War, the Jocelyn Line settled in North Carolina. Amaziah Jocelyn, also spelled Amasiah Jocelyn, among other variants, was a privateer and a war hero. As captain of the 10-gun Bark the Firebrand, he was credited with the defense of Cape Fear. Following American independence, he became the U.S. Navy agent, or supply officer, of the Port of Wilmington, where he also established the city's first chamber of commerce, which he called, funnily enough, the Intelligence Office. The Jocelyns and their descendants, the Moors and the Halls and the Mylands and the Howells and Stevens and Restons and Stokeleys, who comprised the rest of my mother's side, fought in every war in my country's history, from the Revolution and the Civil War in which the Carolinian relatives fought for the Confederacy against their New England Union cousins, to both world wars. Mine is a family that has always answered the call of duty. My maternal grandfather, whom I call Pop, is better known as Rear Admiral Edward J. Barrett. At the time of my birth, he was Deputy Chief Aeronautical Engineering Division, Coast Guard Headquarters, Washington, D.C., He'd go on to hold various engineering and operational commands, from Governor's Island, New York City, to Key West, Florida, where he was director of the Joint Interagency Task Force East, a multi-agency, multinational U.S. Coast Guard-led force dedicated to the interdiction of narcotics trafficking in the Caribbean. I wasn't aware of how high up the ranks Pop was rising, But I knew that the welcome-to-command ceremonies became more elaborate as time went on, with longer speeches and larger cakes. I remember the souvenir I was given by the artillery guard at one of them, the shell casing of a 40-millimeter round, still warm and smelling like powdered hell, which had just been fired in a salute in Pop's honor. Then there's my father, Lon who, at the time of my birth, was a chief petty officer at the Coast Guard's Aviation Technical Training Center in Elizabeth City, working as a curriculum designer and electronics instructor. He was often away, leaving my mother at home to raise my sister and me. To give us a sense of responsibility, she gave us chores. To teach us how to read, she labeled all our dresser drawers with their contents, socks, underwear. She would load us into our red flyer wagon and tow us to the local library, where I immediately made for my favorite section, the one that I called Big Machines. Whenever my mother asked me if I was interested in any specific big machine, I was unstoppable. Dump trucks and steamrollers and forklifts and cranes and... Is that all, buddy? Oh, I'd say, and also cement mixers and bulldozers and... My mother loved giving me math challenges. At Kmart or Winn-Dixie, she'd have me pick out books and model cars and trucks and buy them for me if I was able to mentally add together their prices. Over the course of my childhood, she kept escalating the difficulty, first having me estimate and round to the nearest dollar, then having me figure out the precise dollar and cents amount, and then having me calculate 3% of that amount and add it on to the total. I was confused by that last challenge, Not by the arithmetic so much as by the reasoning. Why? It's called tax, my mother explained. Everything we buy, we have to pay 3% to the government. What do they do with it? You like roads, buddy? You like bridges, she said. The government uses that money to fix them. They use that money to fill the library with books. Sometime later... I was afraid that my budding math skills had failed me when my mental totals didn't match those on the cash register's display. But once again, my mother explained. They raised the sales tax. Now you have to add 4%. So now the library will get even more books, I asked. Let's hope, my mother said. My grandmother lived a few streets over from us, across from the Carolina feed and seed mill and a towering pecan tree. After stretching out my shirt to make a basket to fill with fallen pecans, I'd go up to her house and lie on the carpet beside the long, low bookshelves. My usual company was an edition of Aesop's Fables, and perhaps my favorite, Bullfinch's Mythology. I would leaf through the pages, pausing only to crack a few nuts while I absorbed accounts of flying horses, intricate labyrinths, and serpent-haired gorgons who turned mortals to stone. I was in awe of Odysseus and liked Zeus, Apollo, Hermes, and Athena well enough, but the deity I admired most had to be Hephaestus, the ugly god of fire, volcanoes, blacksmiths, and carpenters, the god of tinkerers. I was proud of being able to spell his Greek name and knowing that his Roman name, Vulcan, was used for the home planet of Spock from Star Trek. The fundamental premise of the Greco-Roman pantheon always stuck with me. Up at the summit of some mountain, there was this gang of gods and goddesses who spent most of their infinite existence fighting with each other and spying on the business of humanity. Occasionally, when they noticed something that intrigued or disturbed them, they disguised themselves as lambs and swans and lions and descended the slopes of Olympus to investigate and meddle. It was often a disaster. Someone always drowned or was struck by lightning or was turned into a tree whenever the immortals sought to impose their will and interfere in mortal affairs. Once, I picked up an illustrated version of the legends of King Arthur and his knights and found myself reading about another legendary mountain, this one in Wales. It served as the fortress of a tyrannical giant named Ritagaur, who refused to accept that the age of his reign had passed, and that in the future the world would be ruled by human kings, whom he considered tiny and weak. Determined to keep himself in power, he descended from his peak, attacking kingdom after kingdom and vanquishing their armies. Eventually, he managed to defeat and kill every single king of Wales and Scotland. Upon killing them, he shaved off their beards and wove them into a cloak, which he wore as a gory trophy. Then he decided to challenge the strongest king of Britain, King Arthur, giving him a choice. Arthur could either shave off his own beard and surrender, or Ritagar would decapitate the king and remove the beard himself. Enraged at this hubris, Arthur set off for Ritagar's mountain fortress. The king and the giant met on the highest peak and battled each other for days, until Arthur was gravely wounded. Just as Gower grabbed the king by the hair and prepared to cut off his head, Arthur summoned a last measure of strength and sank his fabled sword through the eye of the giant, who toppled over dead. Arthur and his knights then went about piling up a funeral cairn atop Gower's corpse, but before they could complete the work, snow began to fall. As they departed, the giant's blood-stained beard cloak was returned to perfect whiteness. The mountain was called Snodun, which, a note explained, was Old English for snow mound. Today, Snodun is called Mount Snowdun. A long, extinct volcano, it is, at approximately 3,560 feet, the highest peak in Wales. I remember this feeling of encountering my name in this context. It was thrilling. And the archaic spelling gave me my first palpable sense that the world was older than I was, even older than my parents were. The name's association with the heroic exploits of Arthur and Lancelot and Gawain and Percival and Tristan and the other knights of the round table gave me pride, until I learned that these exploits weren't historical, but legendary. Years later, with my mother's help, I would scour the library in the hopes of separating the mythical from the factual. I found out that Stirling Castle in Scotland had been renamed Snowden Castle in honor of this Arthurian victory as part of an attempt by the Scots to shore up their claim to the throne of England. Reality, I learned, is nearly always messier and less flattering than we might want it to be, but also in some strange way, often richer than the myths by the time i uncovered the truth about arthur i had long been obsessed with a new and different type of story or a new and different type of storytelling on christmas 1989 a nintendo appeared in the house i took to that two-tone gray console so completely that my alarmed mother imposed a rule i could only rent a new game when i finished reading a book Games were expensive, and having already mastered the ones that had come with the console, a single cartridge combining Super Mario Bros. and Duck Hunt, I was eager for other challenges. The only snag was that at six years old, I couldn't read as fast as I could complete a game. It was time for another of my neophyte hacks. I started coming home from the library with shorter books, and books with lots of pictures. There were visual encyclopedias of inventions with crazy drawings of velocipedes and blimps and comic books that I realized only later were abridged four kids versions of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. It was the NES, the janky but genius 8-bit Nintendo entertainment system that was my real education. From The Legend of Zelda, I learned that the world exists to be explored. From Mega Man... I learned that my enemies have much to teach. And from Duck Hunt, well, Duck Hunt taught me that even if someone laughs at your failures, it doesn't mean you get to shoot them in the face. Ultimately, though, it was Super Mario Brothers that taught me what remains perhaps the most important lesson of my life. I am being perfectly sincere. I am asking you to consider this seriously. Super Mario Bros., the 1.0 edition, is perhaps the all-time masterpiece of side-scrolling games. When the game begins, Mario is standing all the way to the left of the legendary opening screen. And he can only go in one direction. He can only move to the right as new scenery and enemies scroll in from that side. He progresses through eight worlds of four levels each, all of them governed by time constraints, until he reaches the evil Bowser and frees the captive Princess Toadstool. Throughout all 32 levels, Mario exists in front of what in gaming parlance is called an invisible wall, which doesn't allow him to go backward. There is no turning back, only going forward. For Mario and Luigi, for me, and for you. Life only scrolls in one direction, which is the direction of time. And no matter how far we might manage to go, that invisible wall will always be just behind us, cutting us off from the past, compelling us on into the unknown. A small kid growing up in small-town North Carolina in the 1980s has to get a sense of mortality from somewhere. So why not from two Italian immigrant plumber brothers with an appetite for sewer mushrooms? One day, my much-used Super Mario Brothers cartridge wasn't loading, no matter how much I blew into it. That's what you had to do back then, or what we thought you had to do. You had to blow into the open mouth of the cartridge to clear it of the dust, debris, and pet hair that tended to accumulate there. But no matter how much I blew, both into the cartridge and into the cartridge slot of the console itself, the TV screen was full of blotches and waves, which were not reassuring in the least. In retrospect, the Nintendo was probably just suffering from a faulty pin connection. But given that my seven-year-old self didn't even know what a pin connection was, I was frustrated and desperate. Worst of all, my father had only just left on a Coast Guard trip and wouldn't be back to help me fix it for two weeks. I knew of no Mario-style time-warping tricks or pipes to dive into that would make those weeks pass quicker, so I resolved to fix the thing myself. If I succeeded, I knew my father would be impressed. I went out to the garage to find his gray metal toolbox. I decided that to figure out what was wrong with the thing, first I had to take it apart. Basically, I was just copying, or trying to copy, the same motions that my father went through whenever he sat at the kitchen table repairing the house's VCR or cassette deck, the two household machines that, to my eye, the Nintendo console most closely resembled. It took me about an hour to dismantle the console, with my uncoordinated and very small hands trying to twist a flat screwdriver into Phillips-head screws. But eventually, I succeeded. The console's exterior was a dull monochrome gray, but the interior was a welter of colors. It seemed like there was an entire rainbow of wires and glints of silver and gold jutting out of the green-as-grass circuit board. I tightened a few things here, loosened a few things there, more or less at random, and blew on every part. After that, I wiped them all down with a paper towel. Then I had to blow on the circuit board again to remove the bits of paper towel that had gotten stuck to what I now know were the pins. Once I'd finished my cleaning and repairs, it was time for reassembly. Our golden lab treasure might have swallowed one of the tiny screws, or maybe it just got lost in the carpet or under the couch. And I must not have put all the components back in the same way I'd found them, because they barely fit into the console shell. The shell's lid kept popping off, so I found myself squeezing the components down the way you try to shut an overstuffed suitcase. Finally, the lid snapped into place, but only on one side. The other side bulged up, and snapping that side into place only caused the first side to bulge. I went back and forth like that for a while, until I finally gave up and plugged the unit in again. I pressed the power button, and nothing. I pressed the reset button, and nothing. Those were the only two buttons on the console. Before my repairs, the light next to the buttons had always glowed molten red. But now even that was dead. The console just sat there, lopsided and useless. And I felt a surge of guilt and dread. My father, when he came home from his Coast Guard trip, wasn't going to be proud of me he was going to jump on my head like a goomba but it wasn't his anger i feared so much as his disappointment to his peers my father was a master electronic systems engineer who specialized in avionics to me he was a household mad scientist who tried to fix everything himself electrical outlets dishwashers hot water heaters and ac units I'd work as his helper whenever he'd let me, and in the process, I'd come to know both the physical pleasures of manual work and the intellectual pleasures of basic mechanics, along with the fundamental principles of electronics, the differences between voltage and current, between power and resistance. Every job we undertook together would end either in a successful act of repair or a curse, as my father would fling the unsalvageable piece of equipment across the room and into the cardboard box of things that can't be unbroken. I never judged him for these failures. I was always too impressed by the fact that he had dared to hazard an attempt. When he returned home and found out what I'd done to the NES, he wasn't angry, much to my surprise. He wasn't exactly pleased either, but he was patient. He explained that understanding why and how things had gone wrong was every bit as important as understanding what component had failed. Figuring out the why and how would let you prevent the same malfunction from happening again in the future. He pointed to each of the console's parts in turn, explaining not just what it was, but what it did, and how it interacted with all the other parts to contribute to the correct working of the mechanism. Only by analyzing a mechanism in its individual parts were you able to determine whether its design was the most efficient to achieve its task. If it was the most efficient, just malfunctioning, then you fixed it. But if not, then you made modifications to improve the mechanism. This was the only proper protocol for repair jobs, according to my father, and nothing about it was optional. In fact, this was the fundamental responsibility you had to technology. Like all my father's lessons, this one had broad applications beyond our immediate task. Ultimately, it was a lesson in the principle of self-reliance, which my father insisted that America had forgotten sometime between his own childhood and mine. Ours was now a country in which the cost of replacing a broken machine with a newer model was typically lower than the cost of having it fixed by an expert which itself was typically lower than the cost of sourcing the parts and figuring out how to fix it yourself. This fact alone virtually guaranteed technological tyranny, which was perpetuated not by the technology itself, but by the ignorance of everyone who used it daily and yet failed to understand it. To refuse to inform yourself about the basic operation and maintenance of the equipment you depended on was to passively accept that tyranny and agree to its terms. When your equipment works, you'll work. But when your equipment breaks down, you'll break down too. Your possessions would possess you. It turned out that I had probably just broken a solder joint. But to find out exactly which one, my father wanted to use special test equipment that he had access to at his laboratory at the Coast Guard base. I suppose he could have brought the test equipment home with him. But for some reason, he brought me to work instead. I think he just wanted to show me his lab. He would decided I was ready. I wasn't. I'd never been anywhere so impressive, not even the library, not even the radio shack at the Linhaven Mall. What I remember most are the screens, The lab itself was dim and empty, the standard issue beige and white of government construction. But even before my father hit the lights, I couldn't help but be transfixed by the pulsating glow of electric green. Why does this place have so many TVs, was my first thought, quickly followed up by, and why are they all tuned to the same channel? My father explained that these weren't TVs, but computers, And though I'd heard the word before, I didn't know what it meant. I think I initially assumed that the screens, the monitors, were the computers themselves. He went on to show them to me, one by one, and tried to explain what they did. This one processed radar signals. and That one relayed radio transmissions. And yet another one simulated the electronic system on an aircraft. I won't pretend that I understood even half of it. These computers were more advanced than nearly everything in use at that time in the private sector, far ahead of almost anything I had ever imagined. Sure, their processing units took a full five minutes to boot, their displays only showed one color, and they had no speakers for sound effects or music, but those limitations only marked them as serious. My father plopped me down in a chair, raising it until I could just about reach the desk and the rectangular hunk of plastic that was on it. For the first time in my life, I found myself in front of a keyboard. My father had never let me type on his Commodore 64, and my screen time had been restricted to video game consoles with their purpose-built controllers. But these computers were professional, general-purpose machines, not gaming devices, and I didn't understand how to make them work. There was no controller, no joystick, no gun. The only interface was that flat hunk of plastic set with rows of keys printed with letters and numbers. The letters were even arranged in a different order than the one that I'd been taught at school. The first letter was not A, but Q, followed by W, E, R, T, and Y. At least the numbers were in the same order in which I'd learned them. My father told me that every key on the keyboard had a purpose, every letter, every number, and that their combinations had purposes too. And just like with the buttons on a controller or joystick, if you could figure out the right combinations, you could work miracles. To demonstrate, he reached over me, typed a command, and pressed the Enter key. Something popped up on the screen that I now know is called a text editor. Then he grabbed a post-it note and a pen and scribbled out some letters and numbers and told me to type them up exactly while he went off to repair the broken Nintendo. The moment he was gone... I began reproducing his scribbles on screen by pecking away at the keys. A left-handed kid raised to be a righty, I immediately found this to be the most natural method of writing I'd ever encountered. 10. Input. Quote, what is your name? Question mark, close quote, semicolon, name, dollar sign. 20. Print. Quote, hello, comma, close quote, plus name, dollar sign, plus, quote, Exclamation point, close quote. It may sound easy to you, but you're not a young child. I was. I was a young child with chubby, stubby fingers, who didn't even know what quotation marks were, let alone that I had to hold down the shift key in order to type them. After a whole lot of trial and a whole lot of error, I finally succeeded in finishing the file. I pressed enter, and in a flash, the computer was asking me a question. What is your name? I was fascinated. The note didn't say what I was supposed to do next, so I decided to answer and pressed my new friend enter once more. Suddenly, out of nowhere, hello, Eddie, wrote itself on screen in a radioactive green that floated atop the blackness. This was my introduction to programming and to computing in general, a lesson in the fact that these machines do what they do because somebody tells them to in a very special, very careful way. And that somebody can even be seven years old. Almost immediately, I grasped the limitations of gaming systems. They were stifling in comparison to computer systems. Nintendo, Atari, Sega, they all confined you to levels and worlds that you could advance through, even defeat, but never change. The repaired Nintendo console went back to the den, where my father and I competed in two-player Mario Kart, Double Dragon, and Street Fighter. By that point, I was significantly better than him at all those games, the first pursuit in which I proved more adept than my father. But every so often, I'd let him beat me. I didn't want him to think that I wasn't grateful. I'm not a natural programmer, and I've never considered myself any good at it. But I did, over the next decade or so, become good enough to be dangerous. To this day, I still find the process magical, typing in the commands in all these strange languages that the processor then translates into an experience that's available not just to me, but to everyone. I was fascinated by the thought that one individual programmer could code something universal, something bound by no laws or rules or regulations except those essentially reducible to cause and effect. There was an utterly logical relationship between my input and the output. If my input was flawed, the output was flawed. If my input was flawless, the computer's output was too. I never before experienced anything so consistent and fair, so unequivocally unbiased. A computer would wait forever to receive my command, but would process it the very moment I hit enter, no questions asked. No teacher had ever been so patient, yet so responsive. Nowhere else, certainly not at school, and not even at home, had I ever felt so in control that a perfectly written set of commands would perfectly execute the same operation time and again would come to seem to me, as it did to so many smart, tech-inclined children of the millennium, the one stable, saving truth of our generation.